keeping. We revisit this theme periodically, and it really just captures the intention of, of having something that we revisit on a periodic basis called salt and light, is to bring our attention to the call of the church to affect the world in which it's set. And there's, there's many dynamics to the Christian life, and sometimes we can begin to neglect some while we get really good at other ones. We can be all over worship, and we just love to experience the presence of God, come together, uh, the, the, the communication with God, the effect from God on our lives. We love music, we love song, and we love those dynamics in our lives. And that doesn't describe everybody in the church. There's some people who look like sticks in the mud during worship. You need to work on that. There's some people who are passionate. Well, great. Well, there's some people who have other aspects of their life that are just very devoted to their responsibilities in prayer as a, as a person who walks in the kingdom of God or, or have a great vision for their family and what it means to be committed to people and be responsible in relationships. And those things are important in our lives. Personal sanctification is important in our lives. Spiritual disciplines are important in our lives. But we can get really good at one or two of those things and not realize that every one of us are called to be healthy in all of them. And so one of the things that salt and light is about, if you want to look at the passage that births this concept, it's Matthew chapter 5. We're not actually going to preach from this verse, but I'll just read it to you. Because it's got an encouragement that very much is a part of what we're going to talk about this morning in Operation Replant. But this verse in, in Matthew 5 says, you are the salt, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there's these, these dynamics of understanding salt and light that help us understand something about how we're to live our lives. You know, salt was something that was used, but for its usefulness to have an effect back in these times, it had to actually make contact with something. Somebody wrote a book a number of years ago called, it was an a book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shakers. Great concept. You know, in a way, this is a gathering of salt. But that salt needs to make contact with the world. It needs to touch the world in order for the salty and the effect that God's brought into our lives to bring an effect into the world's lives. So we're called not just to come gather for church meetings, not just to grow in our Christian faith and our love for God and our love for each other. We're called to have an impact on the world. And in that, that illustration of the light, a light's not supposed to be set, if you will, if this were to be a, a bushel, a basket that was set over the church, and we come together, and underneath the, the basket, man, we shine bright. And that's what the church is. Well, yes, that is what the church is, right? I'm not going to stomp all over that. And if you've been around churches that do that, they're wrong. Okay, we, don't, we don't stand this morning and say, evangelism is what the church is about. And all you people who just love being together with each other and caring for one another and worshiping God, you got it all wrong. No, no, it's wrong to say that. That's a vital and important part of being a Christian, is loving the community of the people of God. And loving them uniquely because that's who they are. And loving God and having a passion for Him and Him alone. But the light of the world is not called to be contained 
to where the world doesn't get exposed to it. And this goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. That dangerous thing of living close to the world, but being wise about our proximity. We're called to do both. This is where we're going to walk the razor's edge until you and I go to be with the Lord. We're called to have an impact in the world, which means you're going to have to have contact with the world. You better be wise in how you do that. But biblical wisdom doesn't mean, well, I just won't have any contact then. You know, because the world could reach back and touch me and could, could defile me somehow. I could become tainted and my walk could become polluted. So I'm just not going to have any contact with the world. You don't get to have that option. You're salt in the earth. You have to touch the world. And there's danger that when you touch the world, the world's going to reach back and touch you. Well, then you're going to have to be wise and you have to walk in holiness. But holiness is, is not the enemy of evangelism. Sometimes we've treated it that way. There's some people who want to reach out and touch the world and they want to do it in an unwise way and their whole life becomes engulfed and looks like the world. And there's other folks who just fall in love with holiness and don't want to have anything to do with the world. They learn to speak their own language, live their own lifestyle, and they never expose anything about themselves to the world. Well, you can't do that either. That's unbiblical. So we find ourselves today, as we've talked the last couple of weeks, about just our concern for the world and its influence upon us. Upon the church, lack of holiness that we have seen growing in the church. Talked about the postmodern culture and how it's influencing the way we think. Talked about the emerging church movement and how already the influence of postmodernism is finding its way into how the church sounds, how the church lives its life. But today I want to I flip the coin and I want to tell you, not only are we to be concerned about the world's influence on the church, we are to be concerned about the church's influence on the world. What impact are we having on the world in which we are set? <clears throat> Operation Replant, as you've heard us mention that several times, and in your covenant groups you'll be revisiting that. And there's a little video that we put together to introduce you to Operation Replant. Many of you have been a part of that already. Operation Replant is called that because we're, we're in a way, we're replanting the church in Lakeview. There's a church that's been there since the 60s. And what strangely began to happen is our influence began to go everywhere but in that community. There are people from, we, we draw, we have more people who go to Lakeview Christian Center who live out in St. Charles Parish than who live in the Lakeview community. When, when Katrina hit, I think we, we had less than a dozen families who lived in the Lakeview community. Now, we're, we're, we've got hundreds of families from all over the metro area that are part of the church. But for some reason in that area, just not much impact. And usually when you're planning a church, and we, we hope to do that in the region around us in the coming years. If you're planning a church, you have to somehow let people know that you're there. Right? You just don't show up and have these closed clandestine meetings that nobody knows about. You show up and you make noise. You, you let the gospel have bright wattage in every way you can possibly consider so that it reaches out and it touches people's lives in every way you can figure out. Well, in a way, if we were planting Lakeview back in Lakeview, well, that's what we want to do. We want to let people know, hey, we are here and, and God wants to touch your life. And we love the opportunity for you to experience that with us. And people do that all over the country when they plant churches, all over the world when they do that. Well, we have the opportunity to replant ourselves back in that community. It doesn't mean we're abandoning the rest of the city, the metro area. We're, we're, we're truly not Lakeview 
Christian Center. We are more of a metropolitan area church. We have folks coming from the North Shore, from all over the place. But the community right around us doesn't know us that well. And we had the thought that, you know, when, when the, the people who drive by that building, who come in and out of that neighborhood who live there, who are going to see this building coming out of the ground, which is what they're doing right now, we thought, when that happens, we don't want them just to see the building. We want them to see the church. And we all realize that building's not the church, right? The building's the place where the church meets. But we wanted the people in that community to see the church. And so we designed these really loud, obnoxious T-shirts so they can't miss you when you're walking through their neighborhood. We put signs out. We, we created this concept called the care team. And what we want to do while that church is being built over the next year, it should be uh, finished just about a year or so from now, we want to have saturated that neighborhood, that community, with the presence of the church. So that when the day that we open up shop and say, hey, we're going to meet with God and you're welcome to come meet with us. Those people feel like, I know those people. Those people are friends of mine. I know them personally. I know them by name. They've been involved in my life. They've cared for me. And, and, they're, and they're inviting me to come be a part of something. I, I want to go check that out. So that's what Operation Replan is. And it's got various ways that we're doing that. And I'm sure that'll grow over time. But, you know, what we're doing in Operation Replan is relevant to the question I asked last week. Last week we talked about the church covenant and what it means to be a Christian. Now, when you read the church covenant, it's just what every Christian is called to do. You know, sometimes when we sign on for Christianity, we didn't, we didn't, read, we didn't, we didn't even read the big print, much less the small print. We just kind of thought, oh, that, that sounds like something I might like in my life. And we jump into it. We didn't stop and think. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? One of the difficulties that we have in this plural society that embraces every idea that comes along is many of us have different definitions. And we won't provide a clear view of what it is to be a Christian. Well, I want to highlight a dynamic of what it means to be a Christian today by looking at being salt and light and how the Bible speaks about that. So turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. We're actually going to study an entire chapter out of the Bible that should scare you by way of how long that will take. Because <laughs> you've seen one verse take over an hour. But we're going to do one chapter today. And pray for God's grace to be able to do that. Luke chapter 10. Now let me bring your attention to something as you're reading the Gospels. I don't know. I don't... Um, I'm not confident that everybody here has, is wonderfully familiar with Scripture. Many folks are new to the church, maybe new to reading the Bible. And, you know, when you come to this book, it can, it can be a book uh, of truths that you want to get at. But, you know, it's sort of, okay, where do I start? What are, what are these different books about? Not all of them seem to be sounding exactly the same way. Let me highlight something that will help us to understand what we're looking at here in Luke chapter 10. When you come to the Gospels... You, you are not, for the most part, there are elements of this where it's, it, this is true, but for the most part, what you're not reading is a chronological series of reports of Jesus' life. Now, sometimes we think that's what it is. The Gospels are about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. When he came to earth, what he had to say, what he taught, how he encountered man, the effect that that had, and he laid the foundations for the explanation of the Gospel through the life that he lived, the death that he died in his resurrection. And all that is contained in the Gospels. 
But the Gospels don't start with day one and then go to day two and day three and week 10 and week 11 and week 12. What you have is four different writers who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to look at Jesus and his life from different angles in order to produce different effects on us as we read each one. So all four of the Gospels face the same Jesus, but do so from different angles and slants. And so they're not attempting to sell exactly the same story exactly the same way. And many times what you'll find in in the, the Gospels, which makes them a little bit of a challenge to teach through them, is these little gatherings of teachings, these little things that Jesus said. He may have said them more than once. And along comes the gospel writer, and, and he feels led by the Holy Spirit to begin to talk about an aspect of Jesus' life or a season of Jesus' ministry. And as he's explaining that, he may grab a parable and put it right there. He may grab a teaching that Jesus did and and put it in that setting as well. He's not trying to chronologically say, well, after this event, then that parable was spoken and and then this teaching was given. Many times he's just bringing that teaching in because the leadership of the Holy Spirit was to put these thoughts in proximity to each other so that we could learn something as we look at them. And that's what Luke chapter 10 is going to do. A number of Bible scholars in their introduction to biblical interpretation uh, say it this way. Luke 9:51 all the way through 18:14 is a thematically structured collection of Jesus teachings all spoken under the shadow of the cross he is on his way to Jerusalem which he knew would soon end his life thematic groupings in the gospels are so common that it is best not to assume that two episodes that appear next to each other are in chronological order unless the text actually says so so if you're reading through the bible and you think well you know, when I read Mark, I find that he, he talked about this right after that. And then Matthew talked about it a little differently. Doesn't that contradict each other? No, because their, their goal was not just to chronologically give a report. It was to gather teachings and gather parables and gather miracles. Many times you'll find one miracle right after another, right, in the scriptures. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that Jesus like, like went on a hot streak. You know, He was just like clicking out these miracles left and right. And then after that, he didn't do miracles for a while. He just did teachings for a while. Uh, they're, they're interspersement, but sometimes the writers bring them together that way. They call these things gospel pericopes. So if you're looking for a new word to add to your vocabulary, pericope is the word of the day. Say that with me. Pericope. It sounds like you should have your finger up when you say that. Pericope. Uh, good luck finding it in a dictionary. You actually probably won't, uh, but it is a word used by biblical scholars. Gordon Fee calls it individual stories and sayings. My little, ep- my little definition is these are episodes, teachings, and parables that are somewhat self-contained units that the gospel writers often gathered or inserted in order to make a particular emphasis about Jesus' ministry and teaching. So what Luke has done for us in chapter 10 here, it's as though he looked at the photo album of Jesus' life and he looked through it and he said, this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one. And he put them together in order to communicate something to us. But he's going to really help us to see something about what does it mean to be a Christian. A certain aspect of that gets highlighted here. Now to really see it, you're going to have to back up into Luke 9 and catch these last few verses. And please remember with me, when you're reading the Bible, the Bible originally did not come complete with chapters and verse numbers. That was introduced hundreds of years later. The original writers just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. 
Now, these help us to have handles I can send you to an address immediately. I'm not having to say, open up to Luke and find line number 468. Uh, That's where we're going to start reading today. But it also helps us to realize these are uninspired breaks in these passages. You come to Luke chapter 10, it's like, oh, what's a new chapter? Uh, Luke was writing, and when he got to the end of what we call verse 62 of chapter 9, he just kept writing. And somebody came along and said, you know, that'd be a good place to put chapter 10. So don't necessarily feel like these are inspired breaks in thought when we look at some of these elements. But if we back up into verse 57, and I'll catch it right there. Let's read this together. It says, as they were going along, this is chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along, along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but Let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, what do we learn here about answering our question? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think sometimes that definition today is so blurry. Well, one thing that's clear in Scripture, especially in the Gospels, is a Christian is a follower of, of Christ. A Christian is somebody whose life course is honed in as a beacon that's attached to Christ, and he is following Christ. Wherever Christ goes, that's where he's going to find himself next in this adventure of life. And you find, you go back in Luke chapter 9, you have Jesus inviting people to come and follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So a Christian is one who follows Christ. Now, what's interesting, if we study this whole chapter here, why did the Spirit inspire this statement to be here? Why this pericope right here? Well, what comes with this thing is a, is a sense of the seriousness and the preeminence and the urgency of following Christ. And he gives us three little examples in order for which to us to filter into, what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, sure, I follow Christ. Are you a Christ follower? I'm a Christ follower. Well, if I gain my definition from here, and somebody comes along and says, I will follow you, and Jesus stopped them in their tracks. And he didn't make following such an easy speed bump on wherever it was you were going, and now you're following Christ. Following Christ is just a little boom, boom, and you just keep going where you're going. Jesus said, following me would turn your life upside down. It would change all your priorities. It would change everything about who you want to be in life, where you want to go next, what you think is fun and worthy and valuable. It will upset all those things. To the man who says, I'll follow you, eager to do that, Jesus turns around and says, hey, buddy, the foxes, they got holes and the birds have got nests. I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. I'm living an adventure that is completely wide open the possibilities of what my life could be involved with next you sure you want to follow me let me just tell you up front up front following me will not be comfortable and following me will not be convenient can everybody hold on to those two words because when we get to the end of this chapter you're going to see 
That's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Following Christ, it will not be comfortable and it will not be convenient. And he's very clear. I'm trying to get that to them right away. He goes on to the next example to another. He said, follow me. And that person says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus turns to that person says, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. Now, when interpreting that passage, you need to be fair to all those scriptures. Obviously, Jesus isn't throwing out the commands to honor your mother and your father. He's not at odds with Paul when Paul talks about uh, caring for your own, and if you don't, you're worse than a heathen. So somewhere in here, I've got to understand this passage to mean that Jesus isn't saying, blow off anybody who's related to you. But he is saying this, those relationships don't take preeminence over you following me. The way in which you relate to those people is under the governance and under the preeminence of my call in your life. I don't think it's a call to abandon your family. I don't think the most noble Christians are those who <clears throat> have long ago abandoned their wives and their children and run off to, <clears throat> to serve in spite of them. That's not biblical. But at the same time, there may be something here for us to learn that there were some priorities about relationships that this person was expressing. And Jesus comes and wrecks those. It may have been that this was not a situation where <clears throat> this guy's father had just died and he was, he was going to blow off the funeral and not go bury him. He's, he's lying dead in his apartment somewhere. Uh, tradition, the way in which Jews had lived their, lived their lives, if that were the case, this man wouldn't have been on the road following Jesus at that point had there been a death in his family that way. This is more than likely a person who has a level of responsibility to his dad, but maybe his dad's, you know, he's kind of getting up in age, and the guy can foresee that in the next several years, maybe, maybe I'm, you know, I need to bury him one day. That's, you know, he's not too far off from that. Um, when that's all over with Jesus, and I'll come follow you. No. No, you come follow me now. You come make me the priority of your life, and you follow me now. He goes on to another and he says, uh, I'll follow you, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. No, no, you, you find following me of the greatest value. You find your decision to come after me the ruling decision of your life. Don't let anything else creep its way into the urgency. Because, see, the mission of God is an urgent mission. Jesus is trying to get across, you know, you're not just following me to the target so we can get a sale. You're following me into this mission of the kingdom where eternal lives are at stake and the glory of my Father is at stake. So there needs to be an urgency. If you're going to follow Christ, it's a call to follow that has urgency in it. So a Christian is a follower of Christ. But a follower that's not going to experience comfort and convenience may have to change priorities in life. And should live life with urgency. Now, let me just say this about some of us in our understanding of conversion. Conversion is to follow Christ. I don't, I don't think that explanation that, that accompanies those passages would necessarily be in the mind of somebody who's saying, well, I was baptized as an infant. Well, did you consider any of these things when that happened? Yet Jesus pushing followers away from him with these statements. You got some of us running around saying, why? Well, I've been a Christian all my life. Well, is this the version of being a Christian that, that you bought into? You know, even if you've been raised in a Protestant setting and you've been in church and maybe you have children who, seven, eight years old, came to a place where they could 
they could tell back to you the gospel and they could explain to you the elements of it. And they come to a place where they want to express something in response to what they've learned. Uh, not a problem with that. But be careful before you assume that they really are Christians. Children will be able to tell you back something that doesn't in any way mean that they've come to grips with following Christ will cost them their life. Following Christ means taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Him. It means He is the preeminent one who is reigning over your life for the rest of your life. Now, I've found, just from my exposure to kids, I found the realities of those concepts, a personal ownership of life. You know, a seven or eight year old doesn't even know what they own yet. Tell them to give it away, they don't even know they own their own life yet. I found when kids get to be about 10th grade, 11th grade, I used to call, when I was in youth ministry, I used to call 10th grade the tripwire. I'd watch these kids, they'd come through junior high, and they'd, they'd be a certain way, and they'd go with the flow, and they were very moldable, and you could, you could challenge them, and they'd, they'd quickly, oh, yeah, okay. Something happened in 10th grade. This tripwire was crossed. All of a sudden, they realized, ooh, goods and commodities. I own something here. I have will. I have things I want to do. I have friends. I have desires. Now, all of a sudden, Christ has got to compete with their life. And now you're going to find out who's the owner. See, when, when someone confesses Jesus as Lord, you're confessing him as owner and boss. That's what that word actually means. So, you know, you just need to hold gently your conviction that my nine-year-old is saved, doggone it. They prayed with me. Um, I'm glad they prayed with you. I'm glad you exposed them to the gospel. Uh, hold it carefully. Watch their lives. Walk with them. See if there's fruit as they grow older, as more ownership becomes a reality to them, and they realize there's something to own in this life that I'm kind of not wanting anybody else to own it but me. Okay, now, now you're in a place to really see, did you really want to give it away in the first place? Remember when my kids were little, uh, I don't remember which one it was, one of the girls, they had these little dolls that meant something to them. And so we talked about the cost of embracing Christ and following Him. And... You know, they were all over that idea until I said, well, well, what if following him means, I forgot the little doll's name, um, no more whatever her name was. It's like that all of a sudden, you know, eyes are like, what? <laughs> this sounded great right up to that moment. What do you mean? I, I, I might have to, to give that up. See, there's a, there's a concept here that at a young age, it's very hard to grasp. So there are concepts in salvation that we don't want to water them down. And just because we've got people to pray a prayer, that really in the Bible you can't even find that prayer, um, that we're convinced that they're a Christian. There's deeper elements to that. It's being challenged here. Being a Christian means following Christ in a way that's inconvenient, uncomfortable, costs us. But it has to do with being a Christian. We keep reading here into chapter 10. We're going to find out being a Christian <clears throat> means people who are on a mission. Luke next tells us, after this, verse 1, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. 
And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them. If you want to make a little mental note right there. <clears throat> when Jesus sent out people, what he told them to do is broken down typically into these two categories. It's kind of a two-step of evangelism. It's heal the sick. It was cast out demons. It was raise the dead. It was, it was bring the power of the gospel to touch their lives. And it was proclaimed to them something. Those were the two dynamics that he always highlighted. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. What does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be a person on a mission. Mission language is everywhere in the Scripture. Everywhere you find the people of God, you find them up to something. They're on a mission. It's why we use terms like Operation Replant. I know that sounds like a military move, because in a way, that's exactly what it is. In a way, what the people of God are, they are a force. They are, they are soldiers. They are an army, because there are kingdoms being represented here. And there are clashes and battles taking place. Everywhere you find Christians in the Bible, you find them on a mission. Listen to the mission language throughout the New Testament. Matthew 28, 18. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Every person is a Christian. Go. Go do something. Go do what? Go make disciples of all nations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes on our lives, many things happen to us. Beyond just mere regeneration where we receive the presence of God into our life, who communicates to us love and affection and care. There is a dynamic of the Spirit that is an empowering dynamic. It is the Spirit coming with a purpose. That purpose doesn't make any sense if you and I aren't going to do anything with it. The reason for the power of God on our lives is because when Jesus said, go out, this two steps of evangelism was touch their lives and say, say what I told you to say. Touch their lives and proclaim the gospel. Touch their lives and proclaim the gospel. That's the two steps of evangelism everywhere. Well, touching their lives involves the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be expressed and to touch theirs. But everywhere we go as Christians, we are on a mission. When you read through Paul's writings, Paul is, is on a mission constantly. We get highlighted in his three missionary journeys. He's everywhere, always trying to take the gospel from here to there. Never content in the Bible is the church with conquered real estate. 
They don't ever get to a place where they say, hey, we've got Jerusalem. Man, we, we got Jerusalem. Woo! Yeah, we got Jerusalem. We're done. Let's do vacation now. Let's go, let's go to the Mediterranean Sea and just, you know, we're just going to hang out. We got Jerusalem. And when they got Jerusalem, then they wanted the region of Judea and Samaria. And then it was the uttermost parts of the world. Well, man, that's a <laughs> welcome to a never-ending task. Welcome to being a Christian. There's always somewhere for the gospel to go that it has not gone yet, even if it's the next-door neighbor or relative. We're all on a mission. That's what Christians are. Gospel proclamation. Let me say this. is two steps. Gospel proclamation is central to the mission. There is touch people's lives, but there is proclaim the gospel everywhere. Matthew 10, if you were to read that, that entire chapter... It's a similar release and, and, and commission as Luke chapter 10. It says in verse 1, He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Right? He gave them ability to touch people's lives effectively. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town to the, of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim, proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is near. Down in verse 19, when they deliver you, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. See, part of the, the gospel, the mission that we're on, and it involves communication of something. It involves proclaiming something about who Jesus is and what he has done and what these kingdom realities mean for people that will come in contact with our lives. The end of chapter 10 in Matthew, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in their cities. Mark chapter 1, verse 38 says, He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, I'm making an issue out of this for those of you who will dig into and become further influenced by the emerging church. I'm making this issue because... The gospel enterprise is not met by acts of care alone. Although that is what I want to emphasize today. But I want to make sure we're clear. When Jesus sent people out, he sent them out to preach and teach. Remember, the emerging church struggles with postmodernism's ideas, that knowledge can't be known, that there, that there that there's just needs to be vagueness, that doctrine is not that important. Well, Jesus sent them out to preach and teach something that they had learned from him. Matthew 28, verse 20, when he sent them out to baptize, and he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, we find the, the disciples out on their commission. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, that they weren't just caring for them, they were speaking to them. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now we have a little bit of an idea. What were they saying to them? What ministry was taking place in these settings where they had dialogue with people who didn't know the Lord? Well, that's explained right here. Verse 10 says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people, so you can know this, of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was reject, rejected by you, 
the builders, I'm sorry, I lost my place. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, there's a place in our contact with the world to bring clarity to the issues of the kingdom, to bring clarity to the element of salvation, to explain clearly who God is and what does it mean to be in right relationship with him. And that has to get explained. Romans 10 highlights the importance of those who come to faith by hearing. How are they to to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Well, how are they going to hear? Because Christians are on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, I I say this carefully, and I want to move off this point quickly, but there is is a move afoot in the church that is de-emphasizing the proclamation of the gospel. I think it's wrong. I think it's unbiblical. I can't find Jesus just sending people out to do nice things. Although he did send them out to touch people's lives and to proclaim the gospel as they did that. You know, the very famous phrase from, I think it was uh, Francis Assisi, who said, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Uh, it, it will always be necessary. It will always be necessary. But I appreciate what he was saying there. What we probably need to hear is more of what he was saying than the church who's decided to blow off proclamation of the gospel. We, we love truth here. The question for us is whether we love people enough to share it with them. And to live our lives in a way that actually touches them. So his point for us needs to be well taken. Live such compelling lives when it makes contact with people. By your care, by your demonstration of love, by the example of your own life in benefiting from the wisdom of God. Live such compelling lives that people will see the difference and will want to know why. Now at that point, when they get curious about why, they need to move beyond. Those are just nice people. To know we are, the, we are some of the biggest jerks you will ever meet on the planet who have been saved and regenerated and affected by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. Can we share with you what's happened to us? But you will have to share. You will have to say something. I put a quote in your outline. This is actually one of the folks who are helping to form and shape the emerging church. He says the opposite. He says, in contrast... As to the view that evangelism is that which gives an answer for those who are asking, we must have faith to believe that those who seek will find for themselves. If this is true, then the job of the church is not to provide an answer. For the answer is not a phrase or doctrine, but rather to help encourage the religious question to arise. In contrast to the type of sermon that aims to answer thought by providing a clear explanation of a passage or area of Christian life, the emerging community is in a unique place to embrace a type of communication that opens up thought by asking questions and celebrating complexity. Now, now listen, I partially agree. But he misses the point in a huge way. The Scripture clearly says for you to be ready to give a defense, to give an explanation for the hope that is within you to anyone who will ask. Now, what he's trying to emphasize, and I want to benefit from what he's saying, What this writer is trying to emphasize is figure out ways to live life that will get people to ask you about the gospel. That's where he's trying to go with that. And he's right in that category. But what's happening and blurring the lines of importance in the emerging church is the emphasis is being put on just live lives. 
people will find their way. Well, I don't find that in Scripture. That's why I don't like it. I don't find it in Scripture. What I find is touch people's lives and proclaim the gospel. Touch their lives and proclaim the gospel. Now, what I want to make sure we're hearing is the need to touch people's lives. Central to every one of our lives is the mission of the gospel. It is the central feature of your life. It is more important than the career that we pursue. It is more important than the family that we have or do not have. It's more important than the material possessions that we own. It's more important than any schedule dynamic that we're pursuing. It's more important than uh, how physically fit we are. Now, it needs to be the governing thing that's most important, but that doesn't mean that those things don't come into play in that. Because quite often, it is the career that we choose that presents opportunities for the gospel to be lived into people's lives. It is physically taking care of yourself that enables you to have the energy to express the gospel. It is living towards your family in a biblical fashion that allows the gospel to find an observable element for the world to see. So those things are important. But what I want to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of is the idea that a Christian is somebody who really loves their career and really loves their family and really loves having this and going here and touching that and doing that. And then they, they come to church and they're part of a gathering where somebody speaks to them who's responsible to advance the kingdom. Welcome to America. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel enterprise. That's not the way the mission of the church will ever, ever get fulfilled. When you read the the strategy of Scripture, every Christian is on a mission. Every Christian is on a mission described in Luke chapter 10. Every Christian is. What you find for people who are standing in front of a bunch of Christians is in Ephesians chapter 4. God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Now, if you follow the way that passage is laid out, the role of pastors and evangelists and those who are in your life is to equip you. And then when you get equipped and you got your backpack full and you know how to use the tools that are in your life, then you go out and build the kingdom through all the avenues where God has allowed people to be a part of your existence. It's not just that these few individuals advance the kingdom. The mission of the church is for every one of us. Now, I would challenge every one of us in this category. There's a mission out there. Do you feel equipped for it? Or do you feel like, I don't know know if I could do some of those things. I'm I'm not this, or I'm not that, or I don't know how to do that real well, or... You know, speaking to people and, and personal evangelism, you know, all that stuff. Oh, I don't know. Well, that might be the place to start. We, we, we kind of started there already. Following Christ is not comfortable or convenient. It is neither one of those. We've got to part with the idea that Jesus is only going to ask us to do things that we're comfortable doing. And I look back over my life and... You know, sometimes I don't, I don't know how other speakers are. I don't get inside their head while I'm listening to them speak and wonder, you know, what did it take for you to get up there and speak in front of people? You just assume this guy looks like he's comfortable in front of folks. And so, you know, just that just comes natural. That's not hard for you. I, I imagine most people that I would talk to would say it was Mount Everest for me to climb to get here. 
It was terrifying. It was nothing I wanted. It was the Holy Spirit's revolver in the back of my head that convinced me to keep going. And I, I look back over my life and very scary adventures. Scary person. I mean, really not. I mean, I'm, well, I guess some of the settings could have been physically scary, but I was, I was, I had more fear of man going on in me than I did fear of being shot in a lot of settings. But God calls us to things that we're just flat uncomfortable doing. I got saved as a teenager. And next thing you know, there was a little gathering of a couple other believers that were there, and we started a Bible study. You understand, I didn't know anything about teaching the Bible. I didn't know anything about teaching anything. I went to a local Christian bookstore and bought something off of a shelf. And next thing you know, every week I'm preparing for Bible study where people and they're, they're having some family members that are coming and we're inviting people from school to come. You know, you understand, this was terrifying, absolutely terrifying to do. Did I feel equipped? Not at all. Was I equipped? Not at all. I didn't know what a pastor was at that moment, much less somebody equipped me to do any of that. Went off, went to college, got involved in outreach ministries like Campus Crusade. You're taking four spiritual laws, cold turkey, walking to a dormitory, knocking on dorm rooms, and trying to open up a conversation about the gospel. I don't know how that sounds to you, but I'm not going, Woohoo! when do we go next? You know, we did these out, out projects, Daytona Beach. We'd all take a herd of us over to Daytona Beach, go out all day long onto the beaches with the four spiritual laws and just walk up to somebody who just came in off of a wave or something. Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, there was nothing in my flesh that said, ooh, I can't wait to create a conversation with a stranger. That sounds like an adventure, doesn't it? What fun. That was terrifying. And I didn't know what I'd say to half of what they'd say to me. It happened to be a Josh McDowell conference that we were attending while we were in Daytona. So I would go back to my hotel room with all the books that I could buy from Josh McDowell. And I started reading. I'm going to get questions about this and questions. And I don't know what to say. And I'm reading. I'm trying to get equipped. I had no idea. I would come back and be a part of a church in New Orleans. Would, would, would find myself in the French Quarter reaching out to people who probably could have killed me. Gutter punks and street people and gang guys and tourists. <laughs> and walking up to them and, and, and trying to have a conversation that leads toward Christ. We did, we did tent revivals in the inner city. I would walk through the Melpa Bean Project. I, 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 I made the mistake of being a guy who had a license to drive a bus. That was a mistake. I don't want to tell you guys that. If we ever own a bus, don't let us know you have a driver's license. You get pressed into interesting duties. So I'm driving the bus through the Melpamine projects and knocking on doors and inviting people to come to the services that we're having in tents. Parked the bus there one night, put some kids on and some people on, drove it off, came back that night later and parked the bus right there. When I got out of the bus, right in front of the bus was a big pool of blood. Right after we drove off, somebody had been gunned down right where the, right where the bus was parked. You know... Christianity is just not always safe. How many of us, there's a bunch of us here who years ago we would do the mission trips to Mexico. We would go into these villages in obscure locations. And wasn't ignorance bliss? You know, we couldn't speak Spanish, so the sign that said, Welcome to Harlem, where people die daily. You know, we didn't know that. We were walking into a village where this was violent. We just, hola, hola, venga aquí, you know, come on over here. 
had no idea they macheted people, you know, in their spare time. But, you know, you just go. Did you feel comfortable? I couldn't even speak the language. Feel equipped? No. Stand up and preach with a translator in Spanish. See, listen, Christianity is going to involve one event after another where there's a mission to be on. I mean, I've told you guys this before. Standing in front of this many people, you know, years ago, there is no way. You are not going to get me to do that. There's, there's not a chance on earth that that's going to happen. Well, following Christ means following Christ. It means you're going to end up in places you'd have never gone by yourself. Now this, quite honestly, this has become much easier than it was years ago. But now, it's become much more challenging for me to just walk up to some stranger on the street and say, hey, can I just pull you out of your life for a second and talk to you about Christ? Now, there may be some here who, for you, that's much more comfortable to do than asking you, would you come up here right now and just share some things with the folks? No. (laughs) But I'll go meet a stranger and talk to him about Christ. And all these things, following Christ means risk, awkwardness, challenge. Birds don't have nests and the foxes don't have holes. You sure you want to follow Christ? If you think he's going to lead you someplace comfortable and convenient, are you sure you've understood the gospel? Christians are on a mission. We need to get about being on that mission. We keep reading here in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned after this outing that they were on of sharing the gospel. The 72 returned with joy. You guys remember the joy of sharing the gospel? Remember what that feels like when somebody encounters hope in their life and they ask questions and their heart is being opened and you're you're seeing an eternal transaction take place in their life and and moments later, they're desiring to say yes to Christ. Oh, you know, is is there anything that makes your life feel like it's got more significance? In that event right there. God, I've just done what I was wired to do as a human being. Well, these guys come back. 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's interesting here, we learn about this aspect of Christianity. Ultimately, Christianity is a clash of spiritual kingdoms. Sometimes we we have let Christianity become an ideology amongst many. We We read too much of the media. See, the media will present Christianity right alongside of Muslims and Buddhists and, and ways of life. And what, if you're not careful, what you start thinking is, well, Christianity is just one choice of many. People believe a lot of different things. They live their lives based out of values. It's part of their tradition. It's part of their culture. Well, that's what Christianity is. We grew up in America, therefore, you know, more than likely we're going to be Christian in our culture. Okay, that's what the media and what the world has told you Christianity is. Christianity is a violent clash of kingdoms. You and I are living on a daily basis. It's almost like you and I have, have these really up close. You ever do that Google Earth thing? You know what Google Earth is? You can kind of press it and zoom away from your situation or zoom in. Well, sometimes we're, we're all over the Google Earth of our life, and all I can see is my finances, uh, my 
trying to go on a diet and lose some weight. You know, our, our world is enormous. We're right here on top of it. And then we kind of Google Earth and we back away from that thing. We find there's other people and there's other events and there's things going on and the world gets to be about this big and now it's just a dot and we back away and we look at the kingdoms involved and you find out there's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness and there are shots being fired and there's violence going on all around us. And we just thought we were having a bad day. We just thought that person who's struggling with that issue in their life, well, you know, probably the way the mom and them raised them. When you back away from the earth, you find out there, there is a kingdom violence taking place. This is what Christianity is a part of. Revelation chapter 12. Listen to this description. Verse 7. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Do Do you look at life through that lens? That there is a devil, there are spiritual principalities and powers that are at war, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You want to know why it is that, that, that people respond to Christianity and your presentation of it and you're discussing it a certain way? It, 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 it's not so often the content so much of what you said as much as it's darkness and light. You are putting darkness and light next to each other and sparks fly and people become angry and they're, they, I don't want to hear all that. I mean, you can talk about anything. Talk about anything. Talk about something disgusting. Talk, talk about daydreams and goofiness. Bring up Jesus Christ and the need for men to come into the kingdom of God. And something's going to the magnetism of the kingdom of darkness will come and turn itself on in that moment. And that person feels a violent need to say, no, what's going on there? It's the kingdom. It's clashing in this moment. Listen to this, this, this commission. Here's, here's Paul's Acts 26. Paul explains before Agrippa his encounter with Christ and the mission that he's on. And you and I can gain some insights about the mission that we're on. Verse 15, Jesus encounters him on the road to Damascus. Paul says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes 
so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When you and I are living and sharing the gospel, that's what's occurring right there. People are being rescued from the dominion of Satan, from the reign of terror that's been in their lives, from the clutches of an enemy who wants to destroy them and keep them from experiencing God and experiencing love and experiencing forgiveness and experiencing eternity with Him. When we get into somebody's life and the gospel comes, you're not just asking people to think differently about something. There is a kingdom warfare that you are encountering in that moment and you're part of it. You are a foot soldier in that moment, going into enemy territory, and you're trying to pull out captives. That's the mission that we're on. That's what it is to be a Christian. This isn't some science fiction movie. This is the Bible. We live our lives too naturally minded. We don't realize that all around us there are spiritual forces tugging and pulling and tempting and twisting people's lives. And you and I encounter those moments in order to wrestle them free through living a compelling life and presenting the truth of the gospel into their lives. Now go back to Luke chapter 10. We get past this mission here, this explanation of what it is to be a Christian, and all of a sudden Luke decides he's going to throw in a parable on the Good Samaritan. It's nowhere else found in Scripture. It doesn't seem as... The setting unfolds that there's a lawyer present who's asking questions. This doesn't seem like the same setting of the 70 that were, 72 that were together and they were telling the story about their encounter and what had happened when they went out and preached the gospel. So all of a sudden, Luke is inspired. Let's, let's put this pericope right here next. Verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on his own animal, set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, "The one who showed him mercy." And Jesus said to him. You go and do likewise. Why why this story right here? Where Jesus is just 
explain what it is to follow Him, explain the mission, sent people out on the mission, celebrated the power and the activity of the mission. And then He introduces not only this story, but there's one more after it that kind of seems out of place. The story about Mary and Martha. And I wonder if these two don't fit into this mission in a way that reminds us. Listen, when you get busy building the kingdom, advancing it, fighting these battles, two things that I want you to forget about. Don't forget to care for people. And don't forget to sit at my feet. Because that was the problem with Mary and Martha, remember? Martha complained because Mary wasn't helping out. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better thing. She's chosen to sit at my feet. What's interesting is sitting at Jesus' feet comes right on the heels of this great mission of going out into the world. So apparently we're, we're to do all these things and to do them well. But I want to draw our attention to this, this story of the, of the Good Samaritan. This place where part of the gospel is just touching people's lives. It is finding them in their moment of need and bringing the life of God to touch them. That's what Jesus kept saying. Now, now he did it with a lot more fireworks. You know, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Touch their lives. I'm going to equip you and empower you. Touch their lives and proclaim the gospel to them. Do both of those things. What's here in this Samaritan story is what does it look like to touch someone's life? Don't forget, as you're on this mission, don't forget to touch their lives. And apparently this is what Jesus said in other places as well. If you, if you were to read Matthew 25, remember the, the great scene before the throne of God where he separates the sheep from the goats and he turns to the, to the sheep and he commends them for the life that they had lived because they, they clothed the naked. They fed those who didn't have food. They welcomed in those who were outcasts. And they were commended for the When did we do that, Lord? When did we visit you in prison? All these just expressions of care just along the way, people found in a place of need. And they got to get cared for by the people of God. And Jesus commends them for that. Isaiah. You read Isaiah chapter 1. You read Isaiah chapter 58. You find the Lord correcting his people because they're fasting and they're going through some motions of being the people of God while neglect is happening all over society. People are not being cared for. There's oppression going on and nobody's rising up. And my people, they want to fast. But is this the fast that I've required, declares the Lord? You will come to me and you will seek me. You'll seek to connect with me. But all around you are people who are suffering and you don't care about them. You haven't taken up their cause. You haven't gotten involved in their lives. But yet you want to come to me in fasting. Is this the fast that I desire, declares the Lord? Or do I want you to loose the bonds? Apply oil to those who need to be healed. When you look at what takes place for this stranger on the road to Jericho and the Samaritan who gets involved with him, I think particularly the application for us is just thinking through where we are right now as a body of believers rebuilding the Lakeview community. On our way down Veterans Highway to a building that will house many 
kingdom dynamics. People being equipped, celebrating the grace of God, singing, praying, fellowship with one another, encouragement, pooling resources and touching lives. And it could be that, you know, as we drive from Metairie down Veterans Highway, and the property's right here on the, on the right, and you look up to the left, and there's this, this guy on the road to Jericho. You can see his house. It's in terrible shape. The whole community has been beat up on the road of life. Happened to be a hurricane named Katrina. But then it became a frustrating road home recovery program. And it became contractors who took advantage of them. And it became this season where their spouse died. And now they're alone. And, and you and I drive past. Now the question for us is, we're just going to drive past on our way? This, you know, we, have, we have a church gathering. You know, we're building a building. Just going to drive past these folks who on their road got the daylight speed out of them and are, and are lying on the road now, bleeding and in need. Put in your outline, as we travel down Veterans Highway on our way to the church gathering, which really is part of the gospel mission, we pass by an entire community that community is the man on the road to Jericho. Are we going to just hurry by? Or are we going to, now listen to these words, because these words have price tags all over them. Are we going to stop? Listen, it costs me a lot to stop. I'm very, very busy. To stop always costs me. We're we going to stop. We're we going to make contact that's what this Samaritan did. He made contact with this person's life. We're going to express compassion. Isn't that what this guy did? Now listen, before we try to make this more complicated than it is, please don't make the Samaritan out to be some guy who was extremely successful. He's well-dressed. He's a mover and a shaker. He owns three or four companies. He's on his way down this road to a big meeting where he's going to be speaking to thousands. And he steps in and he's so together. He's just one of those guys that just, he does everything well. He's a Samaritan pulling a donkey down a road. I don't know what he does. Let's just make him some average farmer. So you don't have to be great to be compassionate, do you? That's the great thing about giving mercy to people. It doesn't cost them anything, so they really don't have any right to expect you to do it a certain way. You show up in their life, their life is beaten up, you're just there to care for them. As best you're able to. Just to express compassion to them. So anybody who can't do that? Well, you know, I, I don't know if I know exactly what to say. Well, how about following what the Lord said? I'll give you some words to say in that moment. How about putting yourself in the position and finding out whether God would give you something to say in that moment? Well, I just don't know what I would say. How about putting yourself in the position and finding out what God would give you to say in that moment? About stepping out in faith. See, Christianity is not comfortable. I'm following Christ. Well, if you follow him, he will lead you into strange places where you don't feel equipped to handle the situation. And then you'll have to depend upon him, which is exactly what he wanted anyway. So there's not a person in this room today who couldn't express care and compassion. Many of you have been through similar events. Just letting, you know, somebody just knowing that, they, that 
Another person knew their situation and that it existed. Teams that are going out and have been going out have been getting in conversations with people and finding out about their lives and these people are opening up and sharing about things that are going on, everything from they've just been diagnosed with cancer to some personal financial ruin that's happening. And just the mere fact that somebody said, you know, can we pray for you about that? As though what you just said to me matters. It matters to me that that's what's going on in your life. Can we pray for you about that? We're going to come back. Is there anything else we can do? And that's what these teams are doing. That's what you're going to learn about when you watch the video in your covenant groups. That's what these teams are doing. And they're creating relationships with people. Because they just express care. Just We just care about you. We can't solve everything going on in your life. We just want you to know we, we know this is happening. We are praying for you. We're going to be back. Is there anything else we can do to help you? He takes action that matters. There, there are things in people's lives that God will allow us to touch their lives in a way that's going to matter to them. The Lakeview community is full of those needs. These, these folks who have, you know, you, you see these pictures and the guys who have been out there on teams, you'll see you know, the weeds. You didn't know weeds grew. This is like the redwood forest of weeds. These, these are weeds in a different league. They're on the verge of becoming trees. I don't know what really to call them. And, and these people are overwhelmed and they don't have the resources or their life has gotten so complicated and their life is spinning and all of a sudden they come and there's one of the teams that I saw a picture the other day. I think it may have been the team that came in from out of town. The, the before and after picture. If I was the owner of that property, I would have just felt like somebody just blew all the cobwebs out of my head. I just felt like a sense of order just returned to my life. I mean, this, it looked like a house when they were done. It looked like a well-groomed house. I wanted them to come to my house next. It was manicured. And folks give a sense of, oh, these people helped me put my life back together. They, they just cared about me. They were strangers on the road. They stopped what they were doing, their busy lives, and all that they had going on, and they just took some time and cared for me. He embraced the cost when he did this. It cost him something to do this. And it will cost us something to do this as well. Timothy Keller, in his book, Ministries of Mercy, sums this up. He says, The the compassion of the Samaritan was full-bodied, leading him to meet a variety of needs. This compassion provided friendship and advocacy. I I applaud and thank God for the efforts that that Connie Udo and, and Liz Widener are doing as they befriend people and become their advocate to help them walk through the road home process, which is so complicated and so confusing for everybody. But they've gotten familiar with the program and help people to fill out their paperwork and help them to know what to do next. Just simple friendship. Hey, I can help you do that. I know it's very confusing, but I know if you send it to this office and make this call. Oh, just befriending folks. Compassion provided emergency medical treatment, transportation, a hefty financial subsidy, and even a follow-up visit. The phrase ministry of mercy comes from verse 37 where Jesus commands us to provide shelter, finances, medical care, and friendship to people who lack them. We have nothing less than an order from our Lord in the most categorical of terms. Go and do likewise. Our paradigm is the Samaritan who risked his safety, destroyed his schedule, and became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. Are we, as Christians, obeying this command personally? Are we, as a church, obeying this command corporately? Matt, you can go ahead and come up. 
But one of the things that this hour and that I hope Operation Replan is going to give us the opportunity to do is, you know, there's, there's a difference. And you've noticed this. When you reach out to some people, they open their life to you. When you reach out to other people, they shut the door in your face. Remember, Jesus said, it's, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. See, the ones who are most likely to say, please come and care for me. Please touch my life is the guy laying on the road in, to Jericho. The guy who's found himself finally in the position of life. That just moments before, he was doing fine. And no thank you would have been his response. But life just beat the tar out of him. It just got bigger than he could handle it. It's just scared him to death. Now, now there's a different opportunity for that person to be open and to be receiving. Now, he's a person needing a physician needing the gospel, needing to be touched. Now, when you reach out into a community like this, you're not going to find everybody's convinced that they're the guy beat down on the road to Jericho. But you're going to find many are. It's to those people that we're being sent that we have an opportunity to step out, to become uncomfortable, to take a chance, to venture out in an area that we don't feel equipped to do, to wonder how awkward will this be, but to step out and follow Christ into people's lives. And we don't want to miss this opportunity. By God's plan, we live in a city that's been left reeling. People have come in contact with more questions about their life in the last two years. Where is this going? What really means anything? Why am I doing this? Where do I want to live? What's my career mean? Do I want to take that job? Do I want to stay here? I've lived in this neighborhood my whole life. What's my life really mean? My family's moved away. You understand, all those events have slammed people to the ground. And right now, many of them are asking questions about life. And what are we called to do? Well, we're on a mission. It involves two steps. It involves touching their lives and proclaiming the gospel. Touching their lives and proclaiming the gospel. And those of you who have served a care team mission into Lakeview, you probably served one of the teams that's, that's reached out and touched their lives, made a difference, helped lighten the load, cared for them, extended the compassion of God into their life had some teams that have been able to actually lead people to Christ, lead them to conversion. We've had people who have begun to come to the church in a part of covenant group as a result of just finding people who cared for them. Now, every one of us can do this. Every one of us are called to do this. Please, let's, let's not invent a Christianity that's about... A collection of ideas. Yeah, we subscribe to those ideas and we come to meetings and we even sing about them sometimes. And we're all for the kingdom being advanced. We, we hope to hear great reports about that. Every one of us in some way is on that mission called to generate the reports that are being said that build up our faith. So as you listen this week in covenant groups, if you're not, not in a covenant group and you'll be able to contact us directly to to get involved in Operation Replant. Don't let this season go by. We want over the next year, and we're, we're actually adjusting covenant groups for the month of August to help 
kind of start this thing off with a bang. But we hope over the next year, there will be many who feel called to the ministry of follow-up. You know, I want to go back to that person. Somebody who will continue to lighten the load of others and give of themselves on a regular basis to being involved. Somebody who will build relationships so that, you know, one day when there's a gathering place for us in that community and they get a little door hanger that sticks on their door, they're going to do what this lady did who came up to me after the service a few weeks ago. And told me about six different people by name, and she told me stuff about them. Came to her house. See, they didn't just come and say, Hey, from a distance, nice to see you. We'll be done with your grass in a little while and we'll be gone. She told me about them. She began to describe them to me. I'm like, Yeah, I, I know that person too. <laughs> kind of eventually told her, I said, You know, half the people in the church, you should feel right at home. She'd come to visit on a Sunday. Because people not only came and cut the grass for her, but they built a relationship and they made clear to her, we just simply care about you. We're grieved by the effect that all this has had on your life. See, it might work best if, if you and I would be the guy on the road to Jericho. Wouldn't it? We're the ones beaten down. We're the ones needing somebody to come care for us. Then how do we feel when somebody shows up? We're the one who, as Jesus said, we're a stranger and you welcomed me. You, you made me feel like I was part of your gathering. You loved on me and you cared for me and you opened your lives to me. See, that's following Christ. Let's stand up together. close this morning out of the thoughts that you shared with your disciples in Luke chapter 10 verse 2 you said to them the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lord, that, that's where we begin this campaign. That's where we begin the furtherance of this mission. Lord, this morning we stop. We turn our attention to the Lord of the harvest and we ask you, raise up laborers for the field of harvest. Lord, give to us that sense, that voice, that divine revelation that the fields are white unto harvest. Oh God, sometimes our eyes are so natural and we're so convinced no one will ever respond. No one will say yes to the kingdom. No one will want to become a Christian. And we look through eyes that don't see the field the way you see them. That don't see hearts and lives that have become ripe, ready, willing are needing somebody to come demonstrate and preach the good news to them. Lord, I pray this morning, we pray together as a church. God, would you raise up laborers right here in our midst, God, right as our church gathers over the next year. God, would you make us laborers in this field? 
that we would go out with faith, full of expectation, that by God's perfect plan, in the midst of catastrophe, you are snatching people from the fire. God, you are bringing them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God, you are rescuing them from the tyranny of Satan and bringing them into the household of your beloved son where they will be cared for, encouraged, strengthened, experience forgiveness and love and grace and a future and a hope. God, would you touch our lives in such a way that whatever was 